0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney
0: Southeast Asia Centre. I'm Duncan McCargo, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and a Professor of Political Science at the University of Copenhagen. I'm delighted today to be joined by Alice Bevan, who's the author of Unwritten Rule, State Making Through Land Reform in Cambodia, which is out in 2021 from Cornell University Press. Alice, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, Duncan. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Alice is a senior lecturer in development sociology at Massey University in New Zealand, where she does research on land rights, agriculture and gender. And this book draws on 18 months of fieldwork in Cambodia. So, Alice, a lot has been written about land rights in Cambodia, which has become a really important topic in recent years. What's new about your argument in Unwritten Rule?
1: So one of the interesting things is that when I started writing this book, there was a flurry of research on land grabbing. At the time, this was 2010 to 2012, when I was spending a lot of time in areas of Cambodia where there'd been a rapid shift to large scale land concessions. So there was a lot of attention from scholars, from NGOs about what was happening and how to stop it and I had been planning to do research on this phenomenon and on on Mm -hmm. the violence which this was being carried out and then while I was there there was this sudden announcement of a land titling reform in these areas of land concessions and that was really new because up until then what you had is kind of this these two economies of land if you will on the one hand In the lowlands, since the late 90s, there's been a real push to have land titling to give smallholders security, to have this cadastral register, and then in the uplands, you had a lot of large concessions that were displacing smallholders, and this had been going along for a long time. So when the government announced this in 2012, this was the first time that they said, we are specifically going into these areas where there are these land concessions up in the uplands and we're going to title these areas out. So this was really different and it caught the eye of a lot of people, Mm -hmm. both in Cambodia and also globally, because it wasn't just Cambodia, of course, this was a time when there was a lot of countries around the world, this this land Mm -hmm. grabbing was really gearing up. And so people said, oh gosh, this is something that we need to think about, maybe land reform in this way can actually solve the problem of land grabbing. And so that's where I became interested. And my argument in the book is that this didn't happen. You look at kind of literature on land rights and land reform, you have kind of two big camps. On the one hand, there's the sort of pro camp, if you will. And that's yes. got a long history in, in economists like De Soto, who argue titling land gives people security over their land. It will allow people to invest. If you want to sell, you can. So it gives transparency and it, and it will allow for upward mobility. On the other hand, you have critical agrarian scholars saying what it allows is for the state to have much greater reach over upland areas and bring them under state control and potentially be exploitative and high taxation, etc. And what I found is that it did neither of those things. It didn't enable people to have more security over the land, nor did it make land and people in the uplands legible. What it did do was it allowed the state to regain and retain control over these upland areas that were not titled out. They sort of became by default then state land. And it did sort of prior to the election have this effect of showing Hun Sen, the Prime Minister and the People's Party's power to actually give people land if they wanted to in those upland areas. So it was really, I argue, more of a political posturing than a genuine agrarian reform.
0: Right, and you have this phrase that comes up a few times in the book. You talk about leopard skin land reform. Mm. Could you explain what, what leopard skin land reform is exactly?
1: Yeah, this is actually word that the Prime Minister used to describe it. And the it's been discussed in different ways, but one of the things that it means is this that you'll have this spots on the landscape. And they talked about having the land concessions. So those are basically big plantation companies that come in and they grow the key crops they grow are rubber, cassava, sugar. So you'll have big companies and then you'll have small holders dotted around. And those small holders will be able to have land title and therefore have land security with the large concessions around them. And that These will coexist on the landscape like an animal spot. So the idea for for a lot of people was that this would be really good because it would enable people to continue their smallholder farms while also accessing employment on the plantations.
0: Yeah. So the irony here, of course, is that Cambodia is a post-conflict society. It's had lots and lots of international attention, UN peacekeeping mission, vast sums of development aid, and that these land reform programs were strongly championed by international actors like the World Bank and the German agency GIZ. So why is the picture that you present so bleak in view of all the attention that Cambodia has had from the outside world?
1: It's fascinating, isn't it? Because since the Paris Peace Accords and the the peace process in the 90s, where at the time Cambodia was the biggest sort of post-conflict peace project, and you had money poured into this. And the land titling and sort of the land titling program put out by primarily World Bank and GIZ, but a lot of other players, that was a real cornerstone, and that has continued. So there's a huge amount of attention, and there was really, it's part of that kind of Whole discourse of good governance, if you get the institutions right, then everything else will follow, was the logic. What that assumed was that the institutions would be functioning and that by giving people land titles, that would then tie people more closely to, to the bureaucratic state and that this would function. They'd then be able to, you know, if there was a land conflict, they would then be able to go and say, hey, go to court and press their case and say, hey, I've got my land title. But it's not working for a few reasons. One reason is that those institutions are not working. So one of the things I did was I would ask people about when you have a land conflict, what do you do? And almost no one... In rural areas, this is not elite people, this is not urban people, this is people in rural areas, almost no one goes to court. They just don't see it as a place that will work for them. They don't have mm-hmm. the money to go to court, they don't think it will rule in their favour. They tend to go to their local officials, their village chiefs and commune chiefs, and that's where a strong relationship of potential protection for local people. And so for many years prior to this uh, national land titling, there's, there's been all these different forms of showing that you have land and one of those that has a lot of power is that you have a piece of paper basically from Mm -hmm. your local officials and so people really put value in that and if they have a problem they'll go to their local officials to try and solve it the local officials have a lot of discretion then in these upland areas to give land to people that come in for the areas or to support particular people in their communes. So it's in people's favour, and this, this is something that Caroline Hughes has talked about, it's in people's favour to make sure that they have a good relationship with their local officials. So one thing I found is that even when people got the land titles, they didn't actually go and register any change in the land title when they sold or bought land. They actually would go to their local officials and get still get the piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And so now I actually just before COVID, I was back in these same communities and I was talking with some of the same people that come up in the book and looked at their land. People really value them. That's something to be said. I'm not saying that it had no effect. People really mm-hmm. value the land titles. They keep them locked away in a drawer. It's very important to have one. They feel that it might do something for them. But then I asked a friend to show me her land title. She recently bought another piece of land. She was very proud of this. And it still had a different person's name on it. And I mm. said, well, no, it's, it's not your name. And she said, oh, no, but, but I got a piece of paper from the commune. So mm. actually, and this is what the development idea that the cadastre register is hopelessly out of date. And that aspect of it's not functioning. But my argument in the book is that actually there's something to be said for appreciating the way in which these kind of reforms are not just about making the population legible, but actually there's power and murkiness and illegibility. And mm-hmm. there's things that are done sort of in a half-baked way, things where people kind of feel like maybe this means something, but they're uncertain about what it means. Mm-hmm. That is actually really powerful for those in rule, such as in this case Hun Sen and the the People's Party. And so my argument is that this kind of what I call unwritten rule, this sort of murkiness of things where... Oral pronouncements matter more than what's written down in the law, that there's these sort of no one's quite sure what's happening. But at any point, you could take your side and you could find that your land claims are actually supported. And on the other hand, you could find they're not that this is really powerful. And so that we need to think about not just the written law, but we need to find how is this working in practice and how is that sort of murkiness and eligibility, how is that productive?
0: Yes, I noticed in several places you cited uh, my Copenhagen colleague Christian Lunt's work. And mm-hmm. of course, he's come out with a book recently that I did another podcast on about three months ago talking about similar issues in Indonesia, which seem remarkably parallel on all sorts of levels.
1: Yeah, I, I really love Christian Lund's work and I think it's great that at the moment we see it and others too, um, Andrew Matthews is one that I cite a lot. Yeah, there's a number of scholars in the last few years that are really paying attention to this production of, of uncertainty mm-hmm. and what that does because if we think about the rural people in Cambodia, when I talked with them about why the land title is important to them, a lot of people will say will say it's important. And when I ask them why, it's not that they say, oh, it means that we have security over our land. In fact, I did a a survey, several hundred people in my field sites and asked people, do you feel that you now have security over your land? And almost no one does. Mm -hmm. So whether you got a land title or not, about half the people in my field sites who claimed a land title got one in the land reform. It was not at all clear why some people did, some people didn't they didn't feel that they had security over their land. However, some people moved into this category of feeling like they weren't sure. That is, there was a possibility. And that possibility is really important. I think what we see in Cambodia and and in other places too that have been written about this kind of production of uncertainty is that what that enables is that at any time, it is possible that the state will protect you. And that this is a very personalised kind of protection. When people wanted to try and press their claims, while I was in the field, there was a new development project that came in. People didn't know what was happening. Basically, they were just told they might lose their land because a dam was being built. Mm -hmm. Rather than going to court or to the Cadastral Commission, they went to sit outside Hun Sen's residence in Phnom Penh and waive their land titles in the air, basically. And Mm -hmm. this is a very common protest action in Cambodia, that what you see is the potential for the government to help you and the potential for particularly Hun Sen to try and take your side. But at the same time, it's not certain. And so that also enables people to be really scared that they might not win. And that fear is a big part of the picture of how rule works here.
0: Right, because a lot of scholars, at least until quite recently, used to argue, perhaps some still are arguing, that the ruling Cambodian People's Party maintained power through a kind of benevolent patrimonialism. In other words, it was providing benefits to the rural population in exchange for political support. I must say, I was always highly sceptical. Having read your book, I feel even more sceptical about that. Can you talk about how far we can see the patrimonial hand of the CPP as a benevolent force?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's been quite a bit of work lately, and I know you've written about this too, the sort of turn, particularly since 2017, to a more overt authoritarianism. But I think one thing that my research shows is that it's not just a story of since 2017, that this no. kind of production of fear in rural areas was there for much longer. And so this sort of notion of the benevolent hand, that's not what I found at all. Certainly, there is that there there is the gift giving, the protection of those who are known CPP supporters. But there's also very much, and this was around the time of the formation of a united opposition party, and right when I was doing the book was kind of this perhaps start that people see of the CPP shifting direction. But I think what, what my work shows is that for much longer, there's been both a politics of fear and a politics of kind of gift giving and protection going on.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Another thing I heard a lot about when I was uh, in Cambodia for the 2013 election was the role of students who'd been dispatched to the provinces, supposedly to to help out in this process of land reform, doing measurements and making notes on behalf of the villagers and adjudicating in some way. And you have a very interesting chapter about that. Could you talk about the the role of those students and and volunteers and what kind of ambiguous situation they got themselves into Mm -hmm. then?
1: This was one of the most fun aspects of the research for this book. Most of the time I was situated in the rural areas. I spent a year and a half living around two of the rural areas Mm -hmm. and talking with people that had been involved in claiming land. But then I did a series of interviews and spent time with these volunteer students In Phnom Penh. And at the time, they weren't actually allowed to talk to researchers. So I was very fortunate that I I basically got to meet one and, you know, sort of snowballed from there and ended up actually spending time with them in the field, watching Mm -hmm. their work as well. So just, I mean, I just found this such an interesting part. These university students, one of them, she told me about how she was studying uh, the Masters of Land Management in Phnom Penh. And in the middle of her class, The head of the university came in and said, I have an announcement, there is going to be a land reform, we need volunteers to go out to the rural areas to solve land conflicts for the people. And we would like you all to be part of this. And then the class shut down for for the next year. They had 3 days training. So there were around about 2,700 university students primarily and young people who lived in the the Buddhist temples around Phnom Penh. They were recruited as the labor for the land. They had three days training where they learned to operate a GPS unit, and they learned to how to get people to fill in the forms to claim land. They had great speeches about what this was doing for the country. Then they were dressed in military fatigues, back <laughs> in the back of military vehicles and trucked all over the country. And these volunteers have such an interesting place here. And I think they're really important to understand what was going on. Because on the one hand, they were seen by rural people to be something really different from the normal kind of Ministry of Land people, development people that would come. And people don't really trust them. They see them as corrupt. Mm-hmm. So the students, they were young. They live often in the villages. They sort of lodged in the local temple where I was living. And they would walk around, they would go and take photos of themselves with local people, they got to know people. Some of them even married local daughters of yes. chiefs and things in the end. So they were very much sort of part of the community and they were treated really differently from normal mm-hmm. kind of agents of the government. But on the other hand, they were also seen to be Hun Sen's volunteers and people called yes. them this all the time. And the fact that they were sort of dressed in these military fatigue, they were part of the kind of Hun Sen sort of army of volunteers, if you will. And so they were actually afforded a both a sort of respect, but also sort of a fearful respect above mm. the local authorities. And so this meant that in cases where you had local or sort of commune chiefs, for example, that did not really appreciate the land reform, potentially taking away some of the power that they had over the ability to give out to, to adjudicate mm-hmm. local land disputes, that the volunteers were able to press their relationship with Hun Sen to sort of have power over local authorities. And one of the things that kept coming up, it was so fascinating, both in my interviews with the, with the volunteers and also with people in these rural communities, particularly the local authorities, was this idea that they had a cell phone with a direct line to Hun Sen. And every team (laughs) of volunteers had the cell phone. And it was kind of, I imagine, like, you know, like the red phone in the movies that calls the the president. It was like that. And the local chiefs talked about this as a very material symbol of their connection, of the students' connection with Mm -hmm. the prime minister. And so they really did have a lot of power during the reform not just to go and do the technical work of measuring land but also to make decisions over who should get land mm-hmm. and who shouldn't and that's a huge amount of responsibility for people that young people that have been given 3 days training
0: right and i also met some of them who all seem to be temple boys and sort of by definition they come from fairly low socioeconomic backgrounds themselves so they went from being kind of, trying to make it in the big city to lording it around in the local communities <laughs> kind of exactly. yeah <laughs> Let me just ask you a question, if I may, about your title, because you have in there this phrase, state making through land reform. Can you explain how it is that this process of land reform was also an exercise in state making?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that's so interesting about Cambodia is that land has been central to the formation of the post-conflict state. You know, if we look at how the Cambodian People's Party have actually built their base, built their power, and managed to have a, a some stability in the post-conflict period, it has been in large part through their control over land and being able to give out land concessions to those who are in support of the party, being able to bring others on side in the 90s and the early 2000s. Through sort of forestry concessions first, then land concessions and minerals. So, this has been really central. Their their control over land has been central to the way that the state has formed. The land reform that occurred, and this is not just a story, I think, of the Order 01, the land reform that I'm talking about, but it's a story of how we understand what land reform does. That this was productive for the CPP's continued rule. And one of the things that's so important, a lot of the work on land reform, when I'm reading all of the literature, particularly the sort of economistic literature on land reform, it just looks at this question of people who get land, what do they do with it? And how Mm -hmm. do they perceive it? But the bigger effect of the land reform in this case, and I think we need to think about this more broadly in cases of land reform, is number one, what happens to the land that does not get title? Those people who were on land who did not get a title, and that was half of the people that were in the communities in which I lived that I surveyed. So we're talking about a large group of people. They actually became less secure on their land, but at the same time, that land then became legitimately state land it was seen to okay that land's not titled the land that was included in the land reform that did not get titled then became legitimately the land of the state which a lot of that land came under the purview of the ministry for the environment and so that is now since 2016 particularly there's been a lot of new protected areas and this is What actually happens with these protected areas is we're still not sure. This is what's happening right now, is that a lot of this kind of untitled upland land is now come back and sort of legitimately into state hands. But what we've seen in the past, if it's anything like the forestry concessions and the economic land concessions, is that that then enables the government to have some control to, if they will to use that land for, for creating opportunities for capital for the CPP, to have sort of money-making ventures, but at the same time to give out to people to bring them on side politically if they need to. So one of the big effects of the land reform, and, and this is not just the story of Order 01, is what happens to that land that is not titled, that then legitimately mm-hmm. comes into state right hands. One of the things also that I look at in the book is, the way in which this worked in upland areas. And I think the story there is really important to tell also because in Cambodia, the communities that are predominantly Indigenous communities can apply for communal land title. And this was a real achievement in the Cambodian land law because in the 90s, when these laws were being formed, there were movements for Indigenous rights that were were able to find traction and the idea is that rather than having to have individual land title, which has these all of these individuating effects of, of for one, breaking up sort of communal management and making it really difficult to do shifting cultivation, that communal land title will enable indigenous community to come together and to have one title over their communal land, which they can then use in. The way they want. However, what happened in Order 01 was that those communities, we're talking hundreds of communities that had applied for communal land title, the volunteers went into those communities and sought to persuade people to apply for individual land title, and many of those communities did. And so what that has meant now in the aftermath of this is that many communities that were in the process of The very long, protracted, and not very successful, I would say, process of applying for communal land title, they have now been broken up.
0: Mm -hmm. Many disturbing aspects to this story. I guess the the thing that's most exciting for me about the book is the way that you are able to do this really immersive fieldwork, spending 18 months conducting your research. What kind of challenges did you come up against during this project? Because you were looking into some fairly edgy stuff at times here.
1: Yes. One of the things I didn't think that I would be writing about fear and Mm. I didn't, to be honest, I didn't really understand when I first started this project, people would say things to me in the places I was living. They'd say, oh my God, like I have just got another phone call and I get it, you know, I get my cell phone rings, I get a call and then they click and they hang up. And that's Mm -hmm. the seventh time that's happened to me. And it's in the middle of the night and it's so scary. And they were really terrified and they weren't sure who it was. It could have been one of the CPP guys that was worried about their activism. And so the the people were really scared. There were all these stories of they had a car crash last week and I'm sure they were trying to run me off the road. And I'm like, you know, how do we know? This is really, it was really strange at first, these quite small things that Mm -hmm. people were terrified about. And by about six months in, when I had had some of these similar experiences myself, it was only then that I I began to realise how terrifying it is to have, for example, when I was trying to access communities, particularly in the Indigenous majority areas where the reform was very contentious and there was a, despite the fact that I had provincial-level permissions. some of the local chiefs were very reluctant to allow me to come into communities. And so I had some of these same experiences myself where, for example, I had jacked up for a, myself and a couple of university lecturer, lecturers from Panyasasa University in Phnom Penh and a group of mm-hmm. students. We were going to go in and, and do the survey that I was doing. And I'd gone the week before, i jacked it all up, thought it was fine, arrived, at the appointed day and time, and the whole village was quiet. Like, there was no one around. Mm. And I'm looking around, and all the students are looking around me thinking, gosh, this is really strange. Um, They knew we were coming. And then there were some people looking out their windows saying – kind of looking a bit scared, not really wanting to come out and engage with us. And mm-hmm. then we talked to a few people and they said that the commune chief had come through the village and said, do not talk to them, stay in your houses, and then had taken off to the field. What I found is things that seemed quite small took on a sort of resonance when you had this underlying fear so I got stopped by the police sometimes taken into the police station just to be interviewed right but then they are very nice and careful but they would say things like you need to stick to these areas if you go into those areas we cannot protect (laughs) you and you know saying this giving me this look I really started to feel as though I had just an inkling of what it must be like to live with that kind of anxiety. And it's so disabling. One of the things that I did not appreciate this until I kind of just started to feel a little bit. And I'm not saying at all, right, that my experience is like those of my participants. Not at all. Because of course I could Mm -hmm. leave. However, it was just that only thing of starting to understand. And one of the things it does is that it means you cannot trust people because right. you never know who is actually on your side and who isn't. And I found this both in terms of relationship with authorities and rural people, but even within the social movements themselves, within mm-hmm. these sort of. Local activist groups that had sprung up to contest the land concessions and that were quite active in some areas during the land reform and trying to make sure that they had some sort of monitoring over what was happening during the land reform and and the the volunteer students. Some of these groups really didn't trust each other because they were... While they might have a sort of united front at the meetings, the local authorities were very keen to pay some of them off to stop their activism, Mm -hmm. to give a few people a bit of land here and there in the community forest areas to stop what they were doing. So the sort of use of both the production of fear And also, at times, this kind of gift-giving and bribery to try to bring people out of the activism they were involved with. And that created real tensions that people had to navigate. And so I talk in the book a lot about how do we understand how people are even able to resist in this kind of environment? And there's so much work a lot of people are writing now in social movement literature about the emotion work that has to be done and that kind of subversion of fear that takes a hell of a lot of labor of that sort of everyday labor within social movements that is so important and I think we so often focus on the marches the big overt contentious politics of what social movements are doing whereas that kind of everyday labor of Mm -hmm. subverting fear and producing cohesion and bravery in order to keep going over long periods of protracted conflict, that is actually what enables social movements to continue.
0: Yes. I mean, it starts to seem particularly dark at the end of the book as it Least we've been thinking, well, some people have got some land and some land titles out of this. And then you start to suggest in the conclusion of the book that when you go back and revisit these communities, you find that people have actually got themselves heavily into debt in many places on the basis of these land titles and have ended up losing the land and now owing companies or wealthy people in their localities large sums of money. That's a a very, very depressing outcome for this process.
1: It is, and that's something that I'm following up more now in the research that I'm doing. One of the interesting things when I was doing my research is that I came in from a critical agrarian studies background, which would, the the sort of theory of land reform suggests that indebtedness is one outcome Mm -hmm land is commodified, and people can use their title to get loans, then people will get loans, they can't service them, they lose the land. So I had thought that might be the case. And that was one of the things that I looked at. However, I didn't necessarily find that the land titles are driving indebtedness. What I found is Uh that there's already a huge amount of indebtedness, particularly, so I had two sort of Field sites and the field site closer to Phnom Penh, where people had had access to finance for quite a few years, they were already heavily indebted. In that area, having a land title didn't enable you to get loans. You could get them anyway. And I mean, this mm-hmm. was, I remember, you know, I've been working in Cambodia since 2005. And I remember when you started to see more and more of those young guys, usually wearing suits, with driving mm-hmm. motorbikes around the villages. And though, you know, mm-hmm. everyone be like, oh yeah, he's from Akilita Bank. He's from this bank. So those guys were already there. However, what the land titles have enabled is people to have larger loans, to get multiple loans from the microfinance institutions. Mm-hmm. Started so what was already a problem has intensified it. And what I found when I went back is that now I've just finished actually the data collection for a five-year project which is working with colleagues in Switzerland and Cambodia and. One of the things we looked at was how indigenous is becoming more entrenched. So from 2015 to 2020, sort of the changes. And we certainly saw that people are using their land titles to get multiple loans, to get larger loans, and they're mortgaging. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if they have four little rice fields with different titles, they might all be mortgaged with different microfinance institutions. And at the same time as they're doing that, in order to service the loan, they're also taking informal loans from friends, from local Mm -hmm. money. So actually this rather than land titles enabling you to access finance that will enable you to further develop your farm and not have to go to the we're actually seeing the opposite. We're actually seeing People both being more indebted by formal money lenders, but also being more enmeshed in these various kinds of informal, very high interest loans at the local level.
0: You've started to talk a bit about your recent work. Can you explain where you're going now with your project? Because clearly this is a a continuing story that's by no means finished and it's not finished for you as a journey.
1: Certainly not. And I really feel a obligation to these places where I'm having lived in them and lived with my family. It's not finished for me and it's not finished for those communities either. They're still living with trying to figure out what the land reform meant. Nothing has really changed from the end of the book, despite the fact that I kind of finished there 2017, the story's continuing. So Mm -hmm. those same communities are still trying to get some recognition of their community forest, despite the fact that during the land reform, about 40% of it got titled out to private landholders. So they're trying to figure out what that means. So so all of that is continuing. I am still continuing to un- try and understand it. In terms of how that plays out in concrete research, I'm doing two things at the moment. So one of them, as I said, is this five-year longitudinal study, and really that's focused on understanding the shifts in indebtedness and how we can see the control over land changing. Do we see that land is is becoming uh, more consolidated and what is happening to those families who have sold or who have lost most of their land in these areas. And the other thing I'm involved with is a project with colleagues at uh, Michigan State University and the Royal University of Phnom Penh. Looking at the small dams that are being built, one of them is the one that I talk about at the end of the book, this irrigation, mm-hmm. that these dams that are being built on tributaries of the Mekong and around the Tonle Sap. And the effects that those small dams are having on people's livelihoods and the kinds of political shifts that they then engender that I start to talk about. At the end of the book, that was when I was just sort of trying to see these dams start to come online. The one that I talk about in the book actually became operational in July this year. But there are hundreds of these all around these sort of tributaries of the Mekong and, and around the Tonle Sap, and our project is in part looking at how we need to pay attention to these kinds of infrastructural projects and the social and ecological impacts that they have, rather than only focusing in terms of sort of dams and, and water politics, the tendency is to focus on those large-scale dams on the Mekong. So we're looking at these smaller projects and the sociological implications of those projects.
0: Well, we look forward, if that's the right phrase, to hearing more about this really important, fascinating, but also rather disturbing research. So thanks very much, Alice, for joining me today.
1: Thanks so much, Duncan.
0: I'm Duncan McCargo of the University of Copenhagen. I've been talking to Alice Beban, who's the author of Unwritten Rule, State Making Through Land Reform in Cambodia, which is a new book that helps us to gain a much deeper understanding of the unsettling politics of land rights in Cambodia. Thank you for joining us on the New Books Network Southeast Asian Studies Channel.